I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm proud to be partnered with Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD and join their community today. Links can be found on the MCP website and IG page. Welcome to episode 42 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. There are so many barriers to becoming a proficient firefighter. Unrealistic mandatory certifications, money-driven courses and programs, poor instruction, the propagation of untested and unproven skills, tactics, and ideas, out-of-touch hiring practices, skewed priorities driving recruit classes and continuing education time, improper division of work, Abuse of broken promotional processes creating leadership voids. Lack of personal and cultural integrity, ownership, and accountability. Physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual fatigue. Financial stress and greed. Peer pressure, stigma, and ego, just to name a few. How can all of this be surmounted? Guidance. Find and align with those that seek to guide and be guided by others focused on what this job is truly about. There's too much to navigate and persevere through alone. We need each other. My guest this episode, like many others, has made his way with strong values, common sense, solid work ethic, and a continuing desire to learn and be shaped by mentors and experience. In knowing that where our bravery best serves us is in striving to keep ourselves and others honest. Here's my conversation with Jeff Cohen. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm doing okay, man. Nice to finally hear you. Yeah, I'm glad we could connect. Let's kick things off with where you're originally from. Give me an idea about your structure, your family, and your upbringing, and we'll go from there. I was born in Windsor, Ontario. I'm the oldest of four. We moved to London when I was two, so I don't remember my time in Windsor, obviously. When we moved to London, I grew up in London's West End. My family originally is from Sarnia. And most of my family's family stayed in Sarnia. So I spent lots of time in Sarnia visiting my grandparents and some of the other relatives. My dad worked for the automotive Ford assembly plant in St. Thomas. It's gone now, of course, but they made luxury sedans. The car that you would know the best would be the Crown Victoria because a lot of police departments use that as their police car. Retired from there. My mom was a stay at home mom till I was in grade eight. She was trained as a school teacher, so she went back to teaching as a grade one teacher. And she's still teaching. She's not ready to pack it in. She has a real love for teaching, so she's still at it. Even through all the COVID and having to manage all the online stuff? Yes, actually, she toughed it out. She said it was challenging as a grade one teacher. It's pretty hard to teach grade one online. She could retire any time now, really. But yeah, she just loves the job. I think she gets more annoyed when people at work try to push her out. They want to know when she's going to retire. Every time they do that, I think she's going to stay an extra year. (laughs) What about athletics and hobbies when you were a kid? What were you into? I was like every Canadian kid that could afford it. I played hockey. 
but I wasn't athletic. I wasn't a good hockey player. Just the basic sports. You played hockey, tried baseball, tried all the sports, but I wasn't good at any real sport. And I was a pretty small kid. I think as the end of grade 11, I finally grew. If you look at pictures of me in high school, I was one of the shorter kids in the class pretty much every time. What was your school and academic path like? I actually wasn't a very good student. I always joke, I think I might have been the first kid to ever get put on Ritalin. I wasn't a good kid, and I think I pretty much had insomnia from birth to maybe my early 20s when I started physically working hard for a living. It was just a nightmare for me. I started probably in grade one. You go to class, and you have to sit and do nothing the whole class. You're not allowed to move, and my body needed to move. I wasn't built for that like a lot of kids aren't, and I just needed to get out and move. I probably was born at the wrong time. Should have been born when you had to get up and go fetch water and do all these chores before you even got to school. That might have been a better fit for me. So it was really tough. High school wasn't much better, partly my own fault. There were opportunities to get involved in sports and other clubs, and I just didn't participate. So I should have tried to get involved in some things in high school, and I didn't. So the experience was not that great for me. Right near the end of maybe grade 11, I realized I was in trouble because my marks weren't very good. So I did pick up my socks. Back then, we had that grade 13 or the OAC year. So I did the OAC year, got some better marks, and then stayed for the following half a semester just to touch up some of the marks. Didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do for a living, really. So my dad, he had gone to the University of Western. He loved the experience. He says that's some of his best years of his life. And it was relatively cheap to go to university at that time. So he just said, well, if you don't know what you're going to do, you might as well just go and learn how to learn, get an education. And this time you get to take some courses that you actually are interested in. You, you have more say in what you learn. So I went to Western and graduated from there. Following that, had to kind of move on to further training opportunities. But that's kind of overall where I went with my early academic career path. And you did an arborist apprenticeship? Yeah. So got out of university. I was still living at home because I was from London and the university is there. So I lived at home and my parents said, you know, you got to have to decide what you want to do. You need to get a job. Retired is supporting you. <laughs> I kind of always had an interest in the back of my mind of firefighting. But my dad kind of said, initially, he kind of talked me out of it. He said, well, you know, you're afraid of heights for starters. And so that's a problem. And you don't really like seeing blood or guts, even on TV. So I don't know if that's going to be the right fit for you. Fair enough. Yeah. And I thought about it and I thought, well, yeah, he is kind of right in a way. I mean, he's making some valid points. So I kind of left that idea alone for a bit. But what I knew after Western was I knew 100% for sure I did not want a job that involved sitting at a desk or sitting around. I wanted to be moving. And I kind of wanted something that was a little bit dangerous. So I was working, doing some landscape maintenance at a job and seeing these guys climbing these trees, these arborists trimming the trees and got interested in that. So talked to my boss who owned the landscape business and he kind of set me on the path to the apprenticeship. So the apprenticeship was really good because at the time the province was promoting apprenticeships. So they were paying for the schooling. I went to Lambton. You had to have a job. So I got a job with a tree company and then enrolled as an apprentice at Lambton. They had an arborist program. So I learned how to be a climber and cut trees and trim trees. And then partway through that, I did leave because my long-term goals were maybe I could get hired with Hydro and be a linesman or something. I knew they got paid real well and seemed like a good job. And the problem with the private tree industry was that they would put money on the job from the ground. They would look at this tree and they would say, oh, well, 
it's going to be $500 to remove this tree. And so you got there and you knew you had however many hours to get it done. But then your boss would say, okay, well, it needs to be done within this time frame, but you have to work safe. Don't do anything dangerous. It was stressful trying to get the jobs done on time. And so I knew with hydro, there was never any rush. You had time to do things properly and you weren't under the clock like that. So that was kind of a long-term goal until I was up a tree one day and a fire engine drove by a couple streets over back from where I was. I could see it. And I just said, fuck it. I got to try for it. It's the only thing I keep going back to. I still did tree cutting on the side, but it wasn't going to be my career path anymore. I knew that much. So what was the initial exposure to the fire service? I know that that was the tipping point for you, but what was the initial thing that put it in your mind? What was it that was drawing you towards it? And then I guess, despite your dad's sage words of advice, which were pretty sound that you still had it in you to get drawn back. What was that? What was the first exposure and what kept it in your mind? The first exposure for me that I can remember was my grandma's house. This is the house that my mom grew up in. My mom and dad grew up streets apart from each other. Well, my dad came to Canada when he was 11, so that's not totally true, but they lived streets apart from each other. My grandma lived just down from the fire station, Sarnia Station 1. So as a kid, when I went to visit grandma, I distinctly I can remember being excited because you'd hear the fire truck, you knew it was coming. Just like the typical kid, I would run to the street corner, watch them drive by. And then back then they'd be riding the tailboard. So it was pretty exciting to see. And then my grandpa, he worked for Imperial Oil and they had their own fire department. They used to have these big picnics every summer for them. And I would go and they would have their fire truck there. So you could sit in the fire truck. I even got a picture of myself sitting there with that little plastic red hat at the driver's wheel. So that was my initial exposure. And little did I know when I got hired in Sarnia, it was cool because my grandma still lived in that house. So I would be driving by her house in the middle of the night and then I'd go visit her the next day and she'd be complaining about us asking me why we had to run the siren at night. So it was cool to be able to do that. And what did you tell her when she asked you why you had to run the siren at night? I always told her, I said, Grandma, it was so that you know I'm up at night. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm working hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you also went to paramedic school at Humber? Yes. So I don't know, maybe it's not interesting, but I think it's interesting. When I got serious about being on the fire department, I started talking to some London firefighters. And this coincided with the ambulance. As you know, the province used to run it. They were going to download it to the municipalities, and it wasn't clear yet how that was going to be done. So I was talking to these London firefighters and they're saying, you know, I think we might run the ambulance. This might be a good backdoor way into the fire department. It'll really make your resume very competitive. So I said, okay, well, I didn't really have any interest in doing ambulance. That wasn't on my mind at all. I'll take their advice and I'll sign up for the paramedic program. So I went to Humber and then the second year I transferred to Fanshawe, not because I got in any trouble or anything at Humber. It was just that Humber was actually the only place it took me because I applied a day late after the cutoff to the ambulance programs and Humber took me and living in Toronto was tough. I didn't have a ton of money, so I would have preferred to be back home in London. So I was able to transfer back to finish my second year at Fanshawe. And what was the journey to getting hired like once you saw that truck going by from the top of the tree and decided to go all in? So in total, probably six years it took me. And I um, met my wife at paramedic school. We got married, had a family, started working for the ambulance. And at the time, 
there was a ton of work with the ambulance. It was really easy to get on. They were desperate for paramedics. So started working, had a family, and that kind of, I guess, slowed things down a little bit, but I kept trying, kept applying. But we moved to Point Edward, which is a little village bordered by the St. Clair River on uh, the west side of the village and then surrounded by the city of Sarnia on every other side. But it has a little volunteer department, really good one. And I started volunteering there, working for the ambulance and still applying. But in that meantime, most of the cities started asking for a college pre-service program or they wanted you to have your pro war if sack. I didn't have that. So I ended up having to go down to Texas. The knowledge portion of the course was done online and then the hands-on was a two-week boot camp to get your certifications and then just kept applying and eventually obviously you get to the point where you're going into these rooms to write the tests and you know at that point that you're ready and you're the best person for the job so initially walking in there I used to be overwhelmed and pretty intimidated when you see hundreds of people applying for the job but I think near the end I walked in and thought well it wasn't in an arrogant way but I've put in the work I'm ready to get hired just got to wait till my number comes up. Were the things you liked about working as a medic? Did you like the job? No, hated it. <laughs> Worst job I've ever worked. Really? So why do you see that job that way, but fire differently? Uh, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but it's not the same. They're not a close group of people in my mind, in my experience, not like the fire service. Maybe that's because their history goes back, maybe not as far. They're not a close group of people. And that may have to do with not being able to do meals and stuff together. I don't know what it is, but it just wasn't the same. And I didn't like the work itself. I wanted to fight fires and all the things that go with that. I don't mind doing medical calls. It wasn't the calls themselves that were a problem. I just found the job to be quite boring. Taking people from the nursing home to the eMERGE to get a catheter change just doesn't do it for me. I like working at the AMP as a stock boy than working for the ambulance. It's just not for everybody, right? Yeah, 100%. It just hits everybody differently. So when you finally got hired, what was the recruit experience like? The recruit experience, I was hired with 11 other guys. So we're nicknamed the Dirty Dozen. A 12-person recruit class isn't unique to like where you work in a lot of the larger cities. But for a city our size, I would call us a medium-sized city. And where we worked, that was the biggest recruit class we ever had. The city did a fire master plan. I don't know what they're hoping to get out of it. Some people said they were hoping to be able to eliminate firefighters. And if that's the case, it backfired because they turned around and said, well, no, you need four firefighters on every fire engine. And even our ladders are quints and they're housed at a single apparatus firehouse. So if a fire's in their first due, they're working as an engine. So it ended up meaning that every piece of apparatus in the city needs four firefighters on it other than our rescue. Our rescue is the only exception that can go down. It'll go down to two sometimes if there isn't extra guys on that day. So we got on, there's 12 of us, and uh, I don't want to bash my department, but I also need to be totally honest. And the recruit experience was poor. It wasn't good for me. I didn't think it was very good. We didn't do much. I felt like we were killing time before we could just get on the rigs. It wasn't well planned out, and uh, I didn't learn anything, to be honest with you. Knowing what you know now and looking back, what you should have been given, it's more stark. Yes. Knowing what I know now, it's even worse. I mean, that's not how you introduce new members. And we are doing a much better job integrating our new hires now. They don't get hired in 12s anymore. They just trickle in two or three at a time. But we're doing a way better job. They're trying to integrate them into just our regular shift and let our guys work with them. 
our training officer will say, well, here's the things that we want them to drill on and we want you to reinforce today. And then the guys would work with them and do that. And that is a huge benefit, as you know, because it gets them out of the chairs and practicing the skills as well. And obviously, when you can start teaching somebody something, you get better. I don't know if you've had this experience, Scott, but usually if I'm going to teach something and you're doing it in like skill stations with groups that rotate through, my first skill station that I teach might be a little rusty. Of course, I've practiced teaching it, but I always find the first group that comes to my skill station, it's not as good as the second or the third or the fourth. So I couldn't agree with that more. So we've improved. I think we're doing a better job and our hires that we've got are outstanding. We've got some really good recruits. So are they riding as a fifth on the truck, but aren't actually obviously operating as a firefighter, but are they witnessing what you're doing and watching things in real time or it is at the station and you're doing the training with them? How's that work? So it's both. They're at the station, they're doing the training with us, and then they're also getting on the rigs, usually on the rescue, because there's an extra riding position or extra two riding positions there, and they're coming to the calls with us. When they get there, they know that they're not going to get involved in the firefighting. But are they operating in roles outside of the house or the structure or whatever way they can on the call? No, not until they get the full go-ahead, until they're done what we call their recruit period. It's a short period, because when you're only hiring two or three at a time, We can't hire people that need a lot of work to start. A lot of them are ready to start. You'd be impressed with these guys' skills. Obviously, they don't have the experience, so they need guidance on when to apply certain skills that they've learned, but they're really good. They're ready to go within four weeks. And I mean that sincerely. They're ready to fight fires, you know, under supervision, obviously. I think that's a really important thing you said there that they just need to know when to apply them or almost be given the go ahead or the approval to do that. So maybe in this newer time in the fire service, when we do recognize these people, that's maybe all they're looking for. They're holding back and maybe don't even want to say anything that they know or show what they know, but they need to be encouraged to be able to show it, prove it to you, and then just be given the thumbs up to go ahead and try it. With a lot of those things, when we're told, like, for instance, we want you to train the new recruits on how to stretch the Minuteman. Well, I don't presume that they know nothing about the Minuteman. I say, do you know anything about the Minuteman? Yes. Okay. Would you be able to show me how to deploy it? Uh, Yes. And some of them might blow you away at how good they do it. Well, let's move on to something else. Some of these recruits are coming with very good skill set. Nowadays, you do need to find out what they know first, I think, before you just go ahead and assume they know nothing. As long as they know that it's an open and supportive learning environment for them. Yeah, I think if you go over some of these line of duty deaths reports, a lot of times you find out that there was a junior guy on scene that saw something and didn't say something. And so if we don't foster that, if we don't let them know that if you see something, you need to say something, it could be really bad for us. There could be some bad consequences. That's the most confusing thing for a brand new rookie. Whether it's overtly said or not, they feel like that's the culture. They're obviously not going to say anything about anything, whether it's firegram related or even mental health related. And that's a bad thing we got to get away from. I teach part-time at a fire school, and one of the frustrations for the students is consistency. Because you have instructors showing up from different departments, they'll be completing a task, and then one of the instructors will say, you're doing that wrong. But just the day before, another instructor had already told them, this is how I want it done. The most feedback we get from students is the frustration. But I always say to them, well, yes, I know that's frustrating. We're going to try to limit that. We're going to try to teach you as consistently as possible. However, what do you think it's going to be like when you get hired? You're going to work for one captain, the one shift, and then he's going to tell you, don't do that that way. Do it this way. Then you're going to go to another captain, and that captain is going to say, why are you doing it that way? That's wrong. You're going to have to use your social skills. 
that's the only thing we can tell you. Even when I think I'm on the same page as another instructor, someone that I've worked with a lot, I find out that there's something within that task that I teach slightly different. So it's a tricky thing for new recruits to know when to say something and when to not say anything. The captain doesn't always tell you all the things that they want of you when you show up. (laughs) So a lot of it's not even known until it happens and then you're getting berated about it afterwards. And that's actually just brutal because what you're bringing up and I know what you're getting at is because the captain's not doing anything. The captain's sitting in the chair until a call comes in and not doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is taking those new guys and saying, this is what I expect from you. And not just talking about it, going out and doing it. Go out and practice it. But that's not what happens throughout this entire province. We all know that's what should happen, but it's not happening. When I started learning to be a coach or an instructor, it takes a lot of time and you have to put in a lot of hours. But what I learned to start doing when I see someone performing a task in a way that I don't like is I'll often say, where did you learn that? Instead of saying, you're doing that wrong. And then I can make a decision on, do I need to intervene or do I need to just say, maybe be open to both? Yeah, let's not our first reaction be making it their fault. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we need to give them the perspective too that it doesn't change however many years on that you're on. If you and I show up at a station, the captain might not tell us. They usually don't. They're not going to tell us, hey, by the way, you haven't worked with this crew. This is the way we do all the things we're going to do. We're not going to have a two-hour conversation in the morning before we start shift. We, we hit the ground running and we just go. That can happen throughout your career. It's not like you're going to hit a certain number of years of service and you're all of a sudden going to know the way all the captains want things done. Yeah, that's a fair point too. You can walk through the door and have a call right away. That's just the way it's going to go. What were your rookie years like? So again, I hate to bash my department, but you're asking me a question. I just need to be honest. When we first were talking about this, if I had to sum it up in one word, unremarkable. I originally said we had a really strange culture, but we had no culture at all. We just didn't do much. Back then, I started on 10s and 14s, and the days were long, man. They were very long of doing pretty much nothing. But as far as some good things out of that experience would be the city uh, and the department, they were very disciplined on getting your daily and weekly duties done. So they instilled that into me. And I came on later in my life. I was 35. But for someone in their early 20s, they're learning work ethic at that job. I had already learned work ethic. I already knew discipline and doing duties that had to be done, even if you thought they were stupid. It doesn't matter. They have to be done. So they were good for that. We had our chores and you did those chores. And the other good thing I will say that the department was excellent for is they really encouraged maintaining your physical fitness. They had set aside times to work out. And I thought that was really good. But the day shifts were long. I started hitting the books. When I first got on the volunteer department, I got the IFSA's Essentials And I found a lot of gaps in the book. I had a lot of questions and I got really no answers from anybody because it was a volunteer department. They were slow. They didn't do a lot of fires. Fire behavior. You read essentials on fire behavior. And it talked about all these horrifying things like flashover and rollover and smoke explosion. Burning to death probably wouldn't be much fun. But not once does that book ever tell you what to do about those things. And same with ventilation. Oh, you got to coordinate ventilation with fire tap. What does that look like? The chapters are so disjointed. I end up accidentally finding Paul Grimwood's books. He wrote a bunch of books, Fog Attack, Hero Firefighter. He collaborated on one, Department Fire Behavior Training Handbook. And I just started reading that. And that actually helped me connect some of those dots and see how those tasks and those tactics interact together. And then I obviously started reading the line of duty death reports. I feel like a lot of Canadians want to make a pastime out of slamming the Americans. 
And those line of duty death reports are there for free for everybody. So I went through the Sofa Superstore, the Southwest Supermarket, Cold Storage Warehouse, and learned a ton out of that. So my time there wasn't wasted, but it wasn't what I was expecting. When I was brand new, we went to the fire tower to do some live fire training. We were the attack team, and we found the fire room, of course, because we were told where it was, which was absurd to begin with. I was on the nozzle and get to the room and I'm watching the fire. It's just some pallets on fire. And I don't know why, but for some reason, we're waiting for permission to put the fire out. Don't understand that, but whatever. I'm sitting there waiting and I'm like, God dang, for like four pallets on fire, it's actually pretty hot here. But I got a guy behind me that's been on for 25 years. He's not saying nothing. So I'm like, ah, must be okay. I don't know how far I can push this. Finally, they radio back to us and say, okay, you can put the fire out. And I get this idea that I'm going to put the nozzle down, crawl over to the window. And and remember, I've been a volunteer for a while and I've been in this tower a bunch of times. I think I'm going to crawl over, open this window that's seven feet away from where I'm at the door. And then when I hit the fire, all that smoke and the steam will go out the window. So I start crawling over and it's pretty uncomfortable. And then I lift my arm up to open that window up. All of a sudden, it feels like somebody's let a hive of bees into my coat, and I'm getting stung, man. And I'm looking at the trim on my brand new coat that I just got, and it's dripping down. It's melting. So I crawl over, and I tell the guy behind me, I'm like, Dave, I'm on fire. Put me out. Put me out. So he grabs the nozzle and sprays me, and of course, that makes it worse. Now it hurts even more, because now he's just pushed that hot coat against my arm. So I get out and take my stuff off and I just wreck a brand new mask, a brand new coat. And I've got secondary burns on my shoulder and my arm. Go to the hospital, whatever. I'm going to be fine. But I thought about it for days. Like I thought I did all the reading. I thought I knew the job okay at that point, even though I was new. It dawned on me, like there's nothing more basic than knowing what are the limitations of your PP and how does it protect you? That wasn't taught to me. That was a failure of my recruit class. I didn't think you'd get secondary burns from pallets on fire in a burn tower. It was a huge lesson that I took away from that. But getting burned and wrecking equipment, it isn't a good way to do it, obviously. And what also should come from that for all of us is what are the limitations of people in the house in their pajamas? Oh, yeah, it would be horrible. Absolutely horrible. We always approach the conditions, I think, that we can manage in and thinking about our tactics from what we can withstand. And that really doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. So you're reading Grimwood, Fog Attack, 3D Firefighting, Euro Firefighter. So walk me through what you were taking from that. You mentioned Ottawa. Yeah, so what I was doing also is I started taking some courses, and I'll get right back to Grimwood in a sec, but one of the ones I took was a Brotherhood Instructors course on forcible entry, and that was up in Blythe because I didn't know how to get into any of these doors. You always get these guys that want to say that, oh, the sledgehammer's the key to the city. And even as a new recruit, I'm thinking, well... Maybe a city where all the doors open inwards. (laughs) And I'd never heard one of those either. But even at that, that's a stretch. So go up there, take the Brotherhood course, and I'm blown away. Absolutely blown away. Because these guys are showing me what training is supposed to look like. I went down to Texas for a two-week boot camp. That wasn't good training. There's no way around that. And we can get into the certification process, but there's no possible way I should have been certified on a two-week boot camp. So anyway, that just completely blew me away when I went there. I'm thinking, this is how you're supposed to learn things. This is how training is supposed to be. Fast forward to the Paul Grimwood and the fog attack. At that time, YouTube was starting to show a lot of videos And you could see these pictures in the trade magazines of these firefighters crawling into these houses with thick black smoke. 
covering whatever openings open and pushing out. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do when that happens to me? First of all, if the fire isn't showing, how do you know where to go? Well, unless that smoke lifts somehow by ventilation or moving and flowing and controlling your environment, what happens is the line doesn't move. They crawl in there and are withdrawn because of the deteriorating conditions. I didn't know that. So I started looking into the compartment fire behavior training by reading Paul Grimwood. They're tough to read, but they're really good. And I was thinking, well, everything he's saying makes sense. He was talking about stuff the UL studies came out with. The UL studies came out. And I was like, okay, this is great. But this is the stuff Paul Grimwood was talking about 10 years ago. He was warning firefighters of the dangers of smoke and uncoordinated ventilation. But unlike IFSA, he was actually telling firefighters, here's what you can do about it. Here's how you can make your approach to a fire safer. And that was initially a lot of his writing was about inerting the hot fire gases on your way to the fire. And so I was super interested in it. It sounded legit to me. To this day, it probably would work. But there's obviously some limitations. And at the end of all that time I put in on it, I kind of started thinking, I don't know if this is going to be right for my department, though, because first of all, it seems like the application of the uh, fog pattern has to be fairly precise, which we're not necessarily all that good at precise. And then basically having to take crews out of service and do live fire training and shipping containers. Also, Paul warned that the shipping container training could be a bit of a trap in that it gave firefighters the wrong impression that you could control a house fire, a compartment fire, a bed, chair, going in a house. You could control that with extremely low flow rates. He'd warned about that in one of his books because the ship of container fire is a one megawatt fire. A house fire, the UL study showed this, is 5 to 15 megawatts. And once you get to the fire, you need a high flow rate to deal with the burning material. So there are definitely some limitations. Plus, the compartment fire behavior training didn't allow you to move and flow. It was a hit and move strategy. You couldn't just move and flow, which you all did the study on the impact of the fire streams. I mean, it looks like from what they're saying, the move and flow is a highly effective way to get to that nasty fire. I was getting ready to find a way to get to Sweden and take the course. I wanted to learn it. But I started mastering the knowledge, I guess, and started being able to think about the information I was getting critically. And I just didn't think it was going to be good for us. And then the thing that really changed our mind was Paul Grimwood in Euro Firefighter, he writes an account of Windsor Tower Fire in Madrid in 2005. It was a 32-story building. Fire breaks out on the 21st floor. Well, Paul Grimwood has a really amazing passage in that book a firsthand account of one of the first two officers there. He gets to this fire floor and him and his crew are just taking a beating. It's getting really bad up there. So he leans on his training. He does a short burst, which they teach them. And that doesn't make things better. He does a longer pulse. That doesn't work. These bursts in the pulse for people that aren't familiar are on like a 45 degree fog. So he sets it to straight and he hammers at it and it does nothing still. And this guy barely escapes out of that building alive. That, for me, was the last thing I needed to convince me that there's got to be something better out there. I didn't know what it was yet, though. I wasn't sure where to go from there. The other thing that Paul had done really good in his books is he spent a lot of time talking about hose line selection and safe firefighting flow rates. That got me thinking because at work, everyone said, well, hose line selection isn't based on fire behavior or fire growth or even projected fire growth and heat release rates. It's based on your strategy. If you're in attack mode, you're going to use your inch and three quarter. If you're at a defensive fire, you're going to use a two and a half. And it's important to note that 
that statement was only in theory. And we're not different than any other department. When we went to defensive fires, we were still using inch and three quarter. We weren't using two and a halves. That was only just a talking point. It wasn't actually something that we did. And I would argue that most departments did the same as us. So then you'd stretch all these small lines, work yourself way harder than you needed to, and basically have no effect on the fire. Just wait till it burned down enough to put it out. So I was trying to figure out ways to convince guys that selecting the line isn't based on your strategy. It's based on anticipated fire growth. That wasn't from me. Like I belong to a medium-sized department. That wasn't based on experience that I had. But like I said, while I was sitting there reading all this stuff from these people that had gone to fires and the line of duty death reports pointed out that flow rate was a factor at some of these fires, I thought, well, how can I convince these guys to pull this 65, the two and a half? And also, how can I convince them that it is an interior attack line? So I thought it through and I was able to break the problem down into two basic categories. One was a lack of knowledge on fire behavior, obviously. Because if you understood fire behavior and heat release rates, fire growth, then it should be easy to understand why you would take a two and a half into a building. And then the other one was physically working the line. Well, there's a lot of firefighters that just said, we can't physically work this line. And that was an easy fix because the nozzle was an issue. The nozzle was a 100 PSI nozzle on most of the two and a half inch lines with a heavy brass play pipe. So that nozzle, first of all, had an unbelievably high reaction force, like up to 130 pounds. And just physically, the size of it really meant that it was only going to be used in a stationary position. You would never be able to move it, even if you were just moving it from door to door from an exterior position in a warehouse, for example. And then Dennis Aguirre pointed out, and this kind of blew me away, was that that 100 PSI nozzle, because it required so much pressure, the pump operator had to have it at 100 plus overcome your friction loss, that the hose manufacturers were creeping up the actual size of a two and a half. It wasn't truly two and a half. It was expanding to closer to two and three quarter, which he pointed out could make 100 feet of hose another 70 pounds heavier. So of course, guys weren't going to stretch it, especially inside a building. It's unthinkable. So that part was easy. Just lower the nozzle pressure to 50 and get the proper size hose and start drilling with it. And if people could see that it would be totally flowable and movable by three, it'd be better with four though. But regardless, that was dealt with. But then the big hurdle was trying to convince people why you would do it inside. You get all kinds of arguments. And the usual one to me was the most idiotic is we wouldn't go into a commercial building on fire. But come on. If you look at Southwest Supermarket Fire and Charleston, when they arrived, those were fires that started outside the building. So you're telling me you're not going to go in to see if fires extended in the building? Of course you are. So why would you bring a small line? And I'm not criticizing them because I wouldn't have known this until I read those reports. Those fires had to happen for me to know to do this. But what I am saying is now, knowing what I know from reading those two reports, if it was up to me and I'm going in to check if a fire is extended into a Sofa Superstore, I'm going to tell the guys we're bringing the two and a half in. Conditions in both those reports weren't that bad on entry. You could have laid it in dry. It wouldn't have been that hard and then charged it. If you open the room that's on fire, in the case of the Superstore, I think there was a thousand foot square area of futons that were on fire plus the loading dock. I mean, if you open that door and you flow on it with a two and a half, you flow for 10 seconds and there's no change. In my mind, I would decide maybe it's time to leave and try and apply water from a different spot. Please don't think I'm trying to criticize any of those guys because I'm not. I wouldn't have known to do any of those things till I read the reports. But that was kind of my journey on the flow rates. 
I don't even know how I found the nozzle forward to this day. I can't remember how I did it, but I found nozzle forward. I found Aaron Fields' email and I end up emailing him with my problem because I wasn't successful at convincing anyone to stretch that two and a half. He said, call me. And so I called him and he said, you're probably not going to be able to convince them just by telling them you're going to have to get out there and do it. Why don't you host a nozzle forward class? So that's what we did. Me and the coordinator at Lambton Fire School at the time, he's not there anymore, but we plan to have nozzle forward up to Canada. They'd never been up here before. And we fronted it with our own money, not looking to make money. We were looking to just recoup our costs. I actually lost a bit of money, but I mean, it would have cost me that much just to go down to the States and take the course. So that's not a big deal. We had them up. And again, it was kind of like the experience I had with Brotherhood where I went, this is how you train people. They're elite instructors in my mind, Brass and Aaron. They know how to train people to master skills. So I just want to button up a few really important things you said there. So let's touch back to moving and flowing. And you were reading a lot of Grimwood. That's a lot of fog attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how you weren't necessarily sure it was going to fit. And then you mentioned you got into the two and a half and the play pipe. So let's just go to nozzle selection for a minute and talk about the moving and flowing and what brought you from Grimwood. And I'm assuming then you're now on to straight stream or smoothbore. So walk me through that process. Sure. I had an impression that nozzle forward, and this is actually wrong, was going to be was going to be less was going to require less training than the compartment fire behavior training. And that's not true. To move and flow well takes a tremendous amount of practice. But the good thing is you can do it at your fire station. You don't need to be out of service and do live fire training in the sea cans. If you have some pallets and some OSB, you can do it at your fire station. It takes a tremendous amount of training, I think, to keep up on it and be actually really good at it. That's the start. And then with the compartment fire behavior training, the goal was on your approach to the fire, you didn't want water on the ground you would release a proper amount of water fog droplets and it wouldn't hit the walls. It wouldn't hit the compartment linings. And that would cause that hot gas layer to cool and contract and shrink. And that would take the danger out of your approach. In theory, sounds good to me. I've never tried it at a fire. So that's where I want to leave that. It might work, but I liked Aaron's. And it wasn't just Aaron's. Obviously, he learned from all the people before him, Andy Fredericks, all the people that were teaching this. I started thinking and I started to realize, okay, everybody's terrified of getting caught in this magical flashover that just happens to you. All of a sudden, you're on fire. How does that happen if the shit that's in front of you is wet? It can't happen. I guess it sounds stupid, but it never occurred to me until I took the nozzle four course. If you cool the walls, cool the linings, and get the shit in front of you wet, how are you going to get killed in a flashover? That approach involved, obviously, not an efficient use of water, And that's why our flow rates have that tactical reserve built in. That's why we're flowing 150 GPM or greater, because we're not looking for efficient use of water here. We want water on the ground. It was my understanding of it. And I'm all in. I think that's great. A big problem that happened was my essentials book told me not to flow water on smoke. It said, do not flow on smoke. Basically, it said that. I mean, there's a caveat in there, I think, that says unless you need to. Well, that's great. When the fuck do you need to? How would I? I'm a brand new firefighter working in a place where we don't go to a lot of fires. How does anybody know when I need to? A lot of basic training that's done at the recruit level is responsible for firefighters getting burned. They have to own up to that in a way. They've played a role because anybody that's told people not to open until they see fire, what's more basic than learning to be a nozzleman? Yet when I went to fire school, there was almost no training on being a nozzleman. There's nothing. 
all they did was that stupid drill where you wait till you get caught in a flashover and then you go to your wide fog and everyone jumps underneath it. I mean, the whole drill is ridiculous because usually if you watch it, if someone has poor enough judgment to post it on Instagram, usually it starts from standing. Well, if things are that bad, why are you standing for one thing? And the second part is anybody that's ever gone to a fire knows that those crew members aren't right behind you. They're at a corner. They're not going to jump under your fog pattern. If you wait till it gets that bad that you're going to be caught in a flashover, they're going to run. Hopefully they run the right way. So it's a failure of our basic training. And I started talking to guys. I think I asked Aaron, I asked a few guys, where did this idea of not opening the nozzle come from? And I asked Brass and they all kind of said, well, we think maybe it came from back pre-SCBA days when that would have had a negative effect. The farther you could get without doing that, the better. And that's the best answer I've got so far on why that's happened. But if you look at some line of duty death reports, I mean, how does a nozzleman get killed in a flashover? Well, the only way they seem to get killed is because they never open the nozzle. And pre-SCBA also would be what was burning, how intensely was it burning, what smoke was it creating, how soon was flashover happening. They had a little more time than we do now. Yeah, yeah. They weren't going where we're going. So that course was really good. I mean, nozzle forward isn't the only way, but it's a step-by-step logical approach to nozzleman training, and that's what you need. There's nothing more basic than what they're teaching. Another thing I want to button up is you mentioned doing nozzle forward at your fire station. You just mentioned all you need is some pallets and OSB. So just to clarify for people that might not know that are listening that haven't been exposed to this, what you're saying is to be used for making makeshift hallways to sort of flow and move down. Because I think when people think of pallets and OSB, they think of making a fire in a training building. So (laughs) just so they don't misunderstand, they think that we're recommending they make a fire in their parking lot. That's not what we're saying. Yeah. Don't be doing that. We're not making fires in our parking lots. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to clarify that for everybody. Yeah, that's a good thing to clarify. (laughs) (laughs) You also mentioned how guys would say, well, we wouldn't go into a commercial property fire. You mentioned going in a certain distance and seeing that it wasn't winnable and then backing out. So I think that's an important point to sit on for a second where people picture when you think of going into a structure fire or going into a commercial building, residential, they think going in means all the way into the middle of the building where you're hundreds of feet inside. I think it's really important to just touch back on what you said there is why can't you go five feet? Why can't you go 10 feet, you have 30 plus feet to reach a stream. Why can't you judge where you can go? Why do we have to go all the way in and then start to make a decision? You're making decisions based on what you see as you progress. Well, why do you think people say that? Why is there no nuance to the conversation? Why is it always just, well, we're not going in there. It's a commercial building. No one's in there. It's not worth it. Yeah, I think that's what you and I and everyone that's trying to have these conversations is really about. We want to talk about the nuances. We want to ask the real questions and not for anyone to get defensive. I think when we try to have professional conversations about the job, people instantly take it personally. And I'm not sure what exactly they're trying to defend, whether it's their ego or whether it's the status quo because they don't want to change or it's a combination of all those things. But we should be able to have professional conversations and ask honest questions and have discussions. And if we don't have answers, try and find them together. And that's one of my purposes of doing this. And I've had a similar path of awareness growth that you have. So it's nice to hear you speak of it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, like I've learned a lot from listening to the podcast and a couple of episodes stand out in my mind. Have you ever found that you have seen your members, let's say you're a newer member and you're bringing up something, a skill, you're doing it a different way. Maybe it's new to your department and they get really, really offended. And I just wonder if they feel like we're trying to say this stuff that they were doing up to this point is shit, which is not what we're saying. But sometimes they get so upset. 
we're not saying that it's their fault. When we state it as it is the way it is right now, and where do we need to go? It's not saying that whatever happened before was anybody's fault. Like they had malevolence, right? Like they purposely knew better and decided to do something that was not best for everyone on purpose. Everybody's taking the training that they took and passing it down with the intention of hopefully passing on the right information to the next person. And perhaps it's just access to each other now and it's access to more information that's allowing us to realize that a lot of that good intention, some of it wasn't correct. But if you don't have these experiences, you don't have personal experiences, all you have is what the previous person told you. That's all you have to pass on Then in that moment. Then you just pass it on. Mm-hmm. That's all you can do. Portable ladders, the extension ladder. When I started, I didn't know any different because it comes so long from the factory. We would tie it around both rungs, like, I don't know, five times and then make a couple of hope knots. And then that's how it come off the rig. Well, I don't know where I learned it, but then someone showed me If you take this halyard and you tie it to the base, once you pull it off the rig, it's ready to go up. That makes a lot more sense because if someone's waiting at a window and I got to take the ladder over there and then try and unravel it off the two rungs, I'm not going to need it because they're already going to have jumped out. It's going to be useless. But you do that at your fire station and someone's bound to get bent out of shape about it. Same experience and we ended up changing all of ours. But yeah, it takes a lot to change things. This is where I want to go next with you. How was this for you when you were new? Because I want to get into talking about mentors here and guides. So was there anybody else in your department that was in the same mindset as you or open-minded? Were there a few people that kept this fire going within you because they could have easily squashed it? Like what kept it going inside of you? What people around you were encouraging you? How did you then start to have these conversations in your department? For me, it was going to these courses and talking to people like Brass and obviously Fields and his cadre. That was huge. And I got some friends on the job from different places. We'd get together and we'd talk. And that helped me personally. The department to me was fine. I mean, I had guys that we did some good training together, but not in the sense that you're saying, like trying to move things forward as a new member. Well, that change wasn't going to happen. Not in my department anyway. I was going to have to wait my turn, wait to get on a little longer. But In the meantime, I was able to network with people that were like-minded, and that was super helpful. And those guys are unbelievably generous with their time. Brass and Aaron, if you need to talk to them, they'll set aside time to talk to you. It's really cool. And anybody like them is the same. They'll take time out of their day to chat with you. That kept me going because I knew I wasn't going to change anything at my fire department within the first few years or even the first 10 years. I wasn't going to be able to make any changes. But then how do you stay in it? So I guess that's what I'm driving at. You're early on, you find this network outside, you do this research, you educate yourself, you have your mind opened up, you're going back in on shift, and then you realize you have to wait five, 10 years to try and be able to speak up about this when you realize that, let's call it like it is, the most of what's going on in your department and departments all over the world could be dangerous. So how do you stay in it and how do you stay motivated within your own department? Because you're right, you can't just come back gangbusters and make all these sweeping changes in your own department. So what kept you in it until you could make the changes? Yeah, well, okay, so two things. First of all, I'm stubborn, very stubborn. And when I got to HROC a couple years ago, I think it was, Someone brought up that idea of that five pounds or 10 pounds of steady pressure. I don't remember who brought it up, but I'm thinking, yeah, man, that's what I'm doing. I work with guys that are passionate about the job. And they're like, well, the department, they fucked me over. I don't care anymore. I'm not trying anymore. And I'm like, "Uh, no, that's not how it works. I'm not going to ever quit. I'm not quitting until I retire. I'll never, never, never quit because I don't care. 
So that was part of it, just the way I see things. And then the second part was, and I might take a little flack for this, but when I was early in my career, I was still working on the volunteer department. So things that I wanted to try, I had a chief that was very supportive there. And if I wanted to try something, he was totally game. He cut me a lot of slack. He gave me a lot of opportunities. I could bring things up with him and we could try things out. We were fortunate enough to have use of this commercial building. It was actually at the Blue Water Bridge that was vacant. They built a new one and it was incredible. A wraparound hallway, a straight hallway. It had all these offices. It was an unbelievable experience. We went in there every training night and just tried stuff. I don't even know if it's called training. We said, hey, what about this? And then we blacked out and tried it. I'd read something in a line of duty death report. I'd say, well, let's talk about this and then let's try something in the list of recommendations, that kind of stuff. I shouldn't have been double hatting. That was wrong, I guess. But that kept me going, to be honest with you, because I could go in there and do all the things I was reading about at work. We could go and practice. Springboarding off of that then, and just touching back on mentors and guides. So you mentioned about the difference between someone influencing you or people mentoring you on very specific aspects. So talk to me about your mindset on mentors, guides, influencers. I had lots of people in my career had an influence on me, for better or worse. I mean, people that you work with that you think are bad employees, they obviously influence you. Everybody that you have contact with influences you. I don't know that I really had too many mentors that I can think of. I'd heard someone talk about mentors. I don't even know where it was. And they said, maybe we're looking at this the wrong way. That person's not going to be everything that you need them to be because nobody's perfect. So they may guide you through certain areas that they're strong in. And then certain areas, you probably don't want to be like them. So for me, there was just guys that stand out. Obviously, I've mentioned them. I know there's tons more. It's just those are the ones that I've had exposure to. I never met them, but Paul Grimwood impacted my career in a huge way. And then Brass had a huge impact. And then Fields as well. And even like when I went to H-Rock, there was a lot of guys there. Ray McCormack. And all those guys have the same characteristics. Our fire service values, they actually put them into action. That's what fire service values look like when performed as actions. And so I pick up certain things. Brass, when he was on your podcast, really changed the way I thought about training because he pointed out that there's a lot of instructors out there right now that are training people on how to beat the prop. And when I heard that, I went, oh, dang, that could be me. Totally different approach. And then when I started seeing the stuff that Justin McWilliams was putting out on Search and Rescue and a Chicago firefighter named Larry McCormack, I listened to him on a podcast talk about Search and Rescue. And again, I had an oh dang moment. I went, I'm not teaching this right. The things that I think I'm supposed to be teaching, I'm teaching wrong. And then I started thinking about the times I had done searches and I'm thinking, I've never fucking searched that way. Why am I teaching this shit? I've never gone to a fire and swept the ground with my fucking halligan. Never. So why am I teaching this? So I don't know if I have mentors. It's just people that influence me, really. You mentioned uh, in your write-up to me that you had a paramedic that actually influenced you in a certain way. So what was it about them that you admired? Yeah, yeah, that guy was huge. I worked with him. Again, a good example. He really showed me how to treat people. When I was in paramedic school, they used to tell you, you got to go into the person's house and introduce yourself. And I used to think, that is so dumb. I don't know why I even thought that, but... And then this guy, he would go in, he would introduce himself, find out their name. I started to realize that has a huge effect on people. You're going into their house. They don't know you. You're just walking into their house. A lot of times we don't even knock. You're walking into someone's house that you don't know. That's just common courtesy. Just go in and introduce yourself. It makes people feel at ease. 
that's kind of a good antidote or not antidote. Uh, what's the word for it? Anecdote. Anecdote. <laughs> it's a good anecdote for me on how people can influence you. I guess that seems like a minor thing, but nowadays, if I do a medical call, I always go in there and I say, I'm Jeff. This is my partner, Joe. What's your name? I mean, that's what you should do. Tell me about any calls or training that were teachable moments for you and would be impactful for others to hear about. Yeah, we had some ice rescue training that we did. It's over 10 years ago now. Right now, talking to you, the dates are eluding me, but it was in the St. Clair River. And unfortunately, one of my fellow volunteers was killed during the training. So that was obviously very tough for us. We all knew each other really well. We hung out together. We would do social events together. I'd go to Gary's house and we had Gary and his family over at our house. So for our department, that was a tough thing to get through, like really tough. And guys got through it in different ways. Looking back, I probably didn't handle it. There's behaviors that I displayed that probably weren't appropriate. I could have handled things a little better. I handled it by swimming, actually. I started learning how to open water swim. I don't know why, but I just did. Before that happened, I lived near one of the biggest lakes in the world. That I never thought too much about it. Now the lake's a huge part of my life. I spent all my time in the mornings checking out what the lake's doing, what the wind's doing, and planning. Because I don't open water swim as much anymore, but I do a lot of paddle boarding. So I'm on the lake all the time. But back then, we started open water swimming. And a friend of mine who I work with in Sarnia, he used to work in the States. He was a lifeguard with a beach patrol. So he had a swimming background. So he came along with me and we did a few open water swim races just for the participation medal. We did twice in Chicago. They have a race called Big Shoulders. It's a 5K. And then we went down to Alcatraz and did the escape from Alcatraz swim race. They boat you out to Alcatraz and then they spit you out into the bay and you swim back to San Francisco. So that's kind of the way I handled it. And we just kept training as a fire department. It's interesting how everybody processes these intense experiences differently, where some people might choose to avoid the water because it's too painful. And yet you chose, as other people would, to delve deeper into it and find it as a place of processing and healing. Yeah, I mean, that situation probably affected everybody that was there's life in ways that they'll never even be able to understand. But for me, it made me work even harder at getting better at my job on that side of things. And then all of a sudden, the lake is a huge part of my life. And now I can imagine not living beside it. Have you done any cold water exposure? <laughs> no, I've never tried that. It's weird because I say I'm a chicken when it comes to the cold water. But right now is surf season on the Great Lakes. And so I'm in the water, obviously with a wetsuit on, but the wetsuit when you dive down under the water, a little bit of water always flushes into that suit. So it is cold out there when you're in the middle of December, even with the wetsuit. I should try it though. There's a guy in my work that just goes in all year round and does it, but I've never done it. Yeah, we can definitely talk more about that. I think given your mindset is something you can definitely align with and dive into. I guess no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You do it? Not regularly, but I am trying to integrate it more and more in my life in fits and starts and I'm back at it again. Do you go in at the beach? Luckily here with Georgian Bay, it never really gets warm, right? No. So it's always a certain levels of cold. So it's cool and refreshing in the summertime and then just gets colder from there. So you can just sort of keep going in until, you know, it's painful. And then, you know, going off of that, you probably know of Wim Hof. Yeah. Breathing techniques, so doing breath work. So the breath work then and incorporating cold showers and exposing yourself to cold immersion. And I actually have Raynaud's syndrome, decreased circulation in your hands and feet. And doing this will hopefully over time, because there's guys that have had great benefits from it, help to mitigate that. So there's a few purposes around it. Great for your mental health as well. 
Right. I heard if you don't keep doing it regularly, though, it's just brutal to go in. Well, it's kind of like everything else we're talking about, right? You don't flow and move for a long time and you wait a year and you do it. You pick it up, you're a little rusty, right? These perishable skills. Yeah, I used to think like most people that if you went in a water that cold, four minutes, you'd be dead. I didn't realize for quite some time how long you could last in cold water and be fine, like not even have your core temperature move a degree. If you want to learn about anything that your body can do and you want to be interested in it enough to dive in, then there's a lot of places you can take yourself. Yeah, especially now. It's easier to connect with people. Let's just go back to training for a moment here. What topics can we afford to spend less time training recruits on and what topics can we reallocate that to? So I give you an open schedule for a recruit class. How long do you see that they are now? How long should they be? And what would you fill it with and what would you cut? This is the stuff that I love. I re-listened to your episode with Johnny Cadiz and what he had said was when you asked him about his initial training, and I think he went to Humber, it doesn't matter, they're all the same. And not necessarily in a bad way, don't get me wrong, but the training is very similar. He said, I wish we spent more time learning the firemanship skills, the basics, and we hammered away until we were proficient at them, until we were competent at them. They exposed us to a lot of things, but there's a difference between exposure and learning. I agree with him 100%. So what we need to get rid of is obvious. Firefighter 2, get rid of it. First of all, if it was meant to be done at the same time as Firefighter 1, it wouldn't be called Firefighter 1 and 2. It would just be called Firefighter. It was never meant to be done this way. They've bastardized the process, zero integrity, because of this need for certificates. Somebody wants all these certificates. But certificates isn't how we manage risk. That's not how this works. We're not in the business of liability. We're in the business of risk management. So the first thing that needs to go is firefighter two. For example, we know that there's no recruit class in Ontario where they logistically can spend enough time on Auto X to be anywhere near competent at it. Not to mention, they certainly shouldn't be certified. That's for sure. And somehow, they all magically graduate with this firefighter two certificate and pro board accreditation. It's totally against what the fire service should stand for. If you look at the publicly funded colleges, your normal school cycle, it's done in a school year, right? The free service, we can easily, if you do it right, we can train these students on firefighter one and they can be highly effective. Even what I would say is many of them could be certified firefighters. Certified mean they've mastered the skills. It's just exactly what Johnny said, the basics. They get touched on because they're trying to cover all this other garbage like chapter five, low angle. Why are we doing low angle? Why are we doing auto X? Why are they sitting through a two-hour lesson on solar panels, for fuck's sakes? Cut them. That's the end of the class. It frustrates me because they should be out there drilling. Too much time is spent in the classroom lecturing. It's starting to turn around, but far too much time spent looking at PowerPoints. They need to spend their time doing is what's most important. It's all the basics, stretching lines putting their SCBA on, putting up portable ladders, being a good nozzleman, forcible entry, and really good search. I seen this one training company, I won't name them, and I don't know why you'd put this on Instagram, but they're highlighting their students searching an empty apparatus bay, holding onto each other's ankles, sweeping the ground with tools. If you're going to teach search that bad, you should at least not put it out there for everybody to see. That is completely useless, serves no purpose to teaching Somebody, when they get hired, what to do when they crawl into this building that's floor to ceiling smoke, they have no idea where they're going. And the only exposure to search is what they learned at their fire school. We could teach people how to search effectively and give them the confidence to search in zero visibility and heat, but that's not what's being done. And it's like, 
well, this week's ladders, and then we won't do it to the end of the year when they do scenarios. And why are they even doing scenarios? Like Brass says, you have to be able to perform the skills correctly to do scenarios. I get passionate about it because I hate that the way we're training new people generally, there are some exceptions, there's some places that are doing a better job, but it's generally really bad. The way I put it in perspective with the Halligan is take all your PP off and just lay down on the ground. I'm going to blindfold myself. I'm going to swing the Halligan around and try and find you. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I prefer not to. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a good idea to me. With the Auto X, I think I got off topic, but you can't get enough cars and let people spend enough time and they don't need it. They'll get hired on a fire department and they'll teach them. Just those basics that you and I covered that could be done effectively if you chose to. Or they'll get on a fire department and the fire department won't train them anymore in Auto X. That happens too. That's really disappointing that that happens. I don't even think they should be eligible to write Firefighter 2. There's no reason why they should be able to write that as a pre-service student. If you read the standard, it's meant for someone on a fire department. Because one of the skills is leading a crew into a fire, doing an interior attack role as a crew leader. Come on. They're leaving with a certificate that says they are. And it's important to note that there's still fire departments in Ontario, and I don't agree with this, but there are small fire departments in Ontario where, to this day, the captain is not going inside. I know these departments because I know guys that work there. Why can't he go in without a captain? Got the certificate that says he can do it. So the certification process isn't as harmless as everybody says, because usually if you corner somebody that is a decision maker on these areas, they'll say, well, I mean, they get trained in their fire department. Will they? How do you know? Are you auditing those fire departments to see if they're training their members? That's what I'm touching on there. I wasn't saying that specifically with AutoX, but the point is that if you cut it, then there's departments, they'll just expose them to it and not train them on it so that they don't get the training at all in the pre-service and they don't get it at their own department. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's really sad. That shouldn't happen. On all of this is that it's unsafe. That's what we're driving at, right? This really comes down to being unsafe Mm -hmm. and unhelpful to the people we're trying to help. If we just focused on making all of our members effective on the fire ground, I truly think that if you're a leader in the fire service and you're worried about liability, the liability starts to drop drastically the better trained your members are. For example, if you look at people that do extreme sports, how do they manage risk? They don't do it through equipment and PPE and all this. They do it through unbelievable amounts of purposeful practice. I like to paddle surf the Great Lakes. I couldn't surf a 30-foot wave. I would be killed. How could someone else surf that wave with a high degree of safety? Hear about a ton of big wave surfers dying. I mean, it happens, but it's not every day. So how do they manage risk effectively? Well, they do have PPE. They do have some safety things there, but it's mostly through training. Well, I think what we're seeing with the people that are doing stuff like the big wave surfers, those are people that are pushing the edge of what our training and skills and PPE could, in that sport, manage. They're pushing beyond the boundaries of what we even know. So we can back that down to we have training and equipment that go to the average number of waves or the average size of waves that you can surf, Mm -hmm. and you can surf those extremely well with very, very little risk. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. The top guys are actually creating, they're pushing the limits of what should be possible. You've probably seen this where firefighters see a video on YouTube and they'll go, oh, those guys are a bunch of cowboys, what they're doing. That's so dangerous. And it's like, well, it might seem dangerous to you, but maybe they're better trained than you. I hate talking about this, but this stupid VES argument, how it's so dangerous. Well, maybe because of your limited training, it's dangerous to you. But other people that have put in the work, it's probably not that big of a deal. If it's so dangerous, show me the stack of bodies. 
you get these guys that think they're for them in quotations. And then there's the other group of guys that are cowards or the safety firefighters. I don't believe in that. They're not cowards. They're not safety firefighters. They're less trained than you. And maybe it's on them. Maybe they have put in the effort. They aren't going to the conferences, but they're not cowards. That's an incredibly valid point. That's a really important thing for us to realize. Mountain climbing looks extremely dangerous to me. So should we just stop mountain climbing altogether? Because I think it looks dangerous. You're right. It has to come down to how well the people are trained. Let's go off of that then. You mentioned academies and pre-service courses. I think the analogy I'll start with is, say you want to start looking into fire streams. Well, then you got to start learning about nozzles and hose and stretching and loads. And then you got to learn about pumping and pressures. And then you got to learn about the pumps and how much water it carries. And then you get into specking trucks. Like, how did I get to specking trucks from wanting to, to float yeah. in fire streams? But you realize where it starts. So I'm saying that to sort of bring us into this topic. We talk about the firefighters are on currently, and then we look back at the recruit class. Well, it's a recruit class. Well, it's not in the recruit class. It's the pre-service programs. Well, then it's not the pre-service programs. It's what they're teaching too that they have to teach. So this is just the process that's in place and people are providing the service. How do we change this at its actual roots as opposed to complaining about all the branches on the tree? Excellent. Yeah, I like this topic. It's a big one for me. And where I work, they get sick of listening to me because I'm always complaining about the way they're teaching things. Because if you know you're never going to do that at a fire, that's not teaching by the book. But they'll say, well, we have to teach by the book. Okay, first of all, let's all sit down and agree what the book says. Because just because you see a picture of firefighters in the book holding each other's ankles, show me in the book where it says that. Because I actually read NFPA 1500, and that's not what it says contact is. It lists contact as four different options. And one of them is I can yell over to you and you yell back, but now we have contact. I don't need to hold your ankle. So first off, we have a problem with people saying that they're teaching by the book, but they're not teaching by the book. They haven't even read the book. The book doesn't say that. Let's agree on that first. You said this boils down to safety. Is it not about safety for these instructors? If you know something you're teaching is wrong and could lead to someone being missed on a search or one of your coworkers getting hurt, would you not say, well, I'm sorry, even if the book says this, we're not teaching it this way? If you pull up the IFSA skill sheets, I know we're supposed to use the OFM ones, which are really, really bad. I don't know who they're written by. I'd love to meet the person because they're terrible. But if you pull up the IFSA skill sheets, they're in Word. Why are they in Word? So they can be modified by your fire department. It's your obligation to teach the skills correctly. And when I have these discussions with people, they say, oh, well, we're just teaching the way that NFPA says we have to teach it. And I'm not going to back down on this. As you know, the NFPA doesn't tell you how to do a task. I'm not disagreeing with anybody on what tasks the NFPA says we need to train on. I agree with everything they say. They recruit some very talented people to their committees. What they're saying we need to train on is fine. I'm fine with that. But these people that are arguing about, well, we have to teach them the wrong way. They even have the nerve to say, we recognize this is the wrong way to do the task, but we have to teach it that way, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> we can teach the way that we need to teach. If you looked at the OFC skill sheet for fire attack, it says to coordinate your ventilation with forceful entry. Are we going to do that? Are we going to say, well, that's what it says, so let's teach the students by the book? Or are we going to do the right thing and teach them the right way to coordinate ventilation with fire attack? The people that are creating these standards, quote unquote, because they're not standard, because they're not adopted by everybody across the board, and we're doing it this way. What they're saying is every department's going to teach their firefighters the way they want them trained. 
Mm -hmm. So we have to have this watered down, possibly wrong certification and let the departments clean it up. Should we be then standardizing across, is it North America? Is it Canada? Is it the province? Mm -hmm. How do we get down to this is the way? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I do like that there's regional differences and I don't know, maybe just because I think it's cool. But at the end of the day, do you think there's that big of a difference from the West Coast to the East Coast of what makes up good firefighting? Oh, absolutely not. So there will only be some slight changes that would have to happen. You and I already agreed that in a lot of departments, you get there and they're not training you on their way. They're not training you at all. Not a lot. Maybe I'm overstepping my boundaries, but there are departments. And you also have to look at the volunteer side. With a lot of the volunteers, I mean, if they show up with that certificate for the chief, that's a green light to let them start. It says that they've mastered those skills. Is that not fair? As far as the process says it is, but it's unsafe. It's unsafe for the firefighter. It's unsafe for their crew, their department, and the people that they're actually going to help. Yeah, 100%. In general, I don't support standardization across the country. If you get somewhere and they want you to alter the skill slightly, that's okay because you're still going to be operating as a good firefighter, which is better than the skill set they're leaving with now. When I talked to you before, I was telling you about this book that I'd read called Peak. It's by uh, Anders Ericsson. Uh, he's a psychologist, not a firefighter. Unfortunately, he died fairly recently. But he's responsible for that 10,000-hour rule. Malcolm Gladwell is one who popularized the idea. Malcolm Gladwell tried to simplify his work by just picking a number. It's fine for readers. That's not necessarily the case. Anders dedicated his life to looking at how people master a skill, and then those certain people become elite performers and then start creating like what we talked about the big wave surfers. How does that happen? Because a lot of people will say, well, they're just gifted. And Anders, he debunks that. People aren't gifted at something. It's a tremendous amount of work. A single-minded focus is how they get there. That's how it's done. I mean, obviously, there's some factors when it comes to physical things like swimming, obviously. But he has a little passage that just blew me away. He said, because of the way that new skills are built on top of existing skills, it's important for teachers to provide beginners with correct fundamental skills in order to minimize the chances that the student will have to relearn those fundamental skills later when at a more advanced level. That's what our fire service is going through. And that's why we're failing. We're not doing firefighting at a high level. We're doing it at poor to mediocre at best. You touched on that saying of you can forget almost everything you learn. Now we're going to teach you how we actually perform these skills. So then really, why are you not frustrated as a brand new recruit thinking, so I wasted all my time and I wasted all my money? Yes. Where I work, we actually have a fire science course. So they do their pre-service year and they certify and then they go to fire science. And I, we kind of got in a bad habit of saying, okay, well, most of that stuff we had to teach you just so you could pass. Now we're going to teach you how to fight fires the correct way. And then we're like, God, we got to get out of that. We can't be doing that. The first year has to be the foundation. And the second year, they can build on the foundation. That's the correct way to do it. And these students come out of that fire science year, and some of them are really good. Some of them, skill-wise, are better than 10-year guys on the job. I'm serious. The quality of the training they're getting. But yeah, it's a huge problem with not just pre-service either. Brass will even single out a lot of fire departments recruit classes, especially on the volunteer side. I've been part of those, and some of them are really, really bad. Purely focused on getting a certificate, not saving people that are trapped in a house on fire. Just to touch on, I mentioned waste of money and waste of time there. 
you actually wrote something to me that I wasn't aware of about the taxpayer. They subsidize two-thirds of Canadian students' tuition for the public colleges. Maybe just expand on that for me. Yeah, I mean, the information's out there. You can Google it. Anybody's willing to fact-check me on that. But people don't realize that the colleges, every student's tuition is funded by the taxpayer. They subsidize almost two-thirds of that tuition. And some of the colleges will cover it up if you look at their pie chart. They'll put that 50% of tuition comes from students. They don't tell you that they're including the international students in that 50% who pay outside the fee structure. So they're not subsidized. So a little sleight of hand on the college's part, good for them. But just to be uh, utilitarian, if I'm going to help pay for a student to learn how to fight fires, they better put out a good product. They better leave there ready to go. And you know, as well as I do, when they come to the recruit class, After they've been to pre-service and they're certified, what are you training them on? From the ground up. (laughs) Why? I thought they just did that stuff. Yep. And then you asked them to do it. And the last time they did it was however long ago and it's been forgotten. They were only exposed to it and they weren't taught the proper way. So you literally have to take every single recruit that comes in like they've never been taught anything and teach them from the ground up. Yeah. And so now the taxpayer's on the hook again. Now, I agree with you. Some of it's a time delay. If you've been out of school for six years, you're going to need a bit of a refresher, of course. But you could be spending that time on AutoX. Exactly. Or drilling what you've already been exposed to. Instead of learning those skills that you didn't learn properly the first time. Right. You mentioned Larry Kane from Oakville. Yeah. This is a good place to drop that in there. So tell me about him. Yeah. So I wanted to be a better instructor. Lampton County, they have a recruit class for new volunteers. Every station doesn't have to run a recruit class. We do a central one. I was asked, do you want to train on a couple of things? I said, sure. Done this six years ago, at least. I am getting something out of it. I'm not doing it out of the goodness of my heart. My motivation was I knew I needed to be a better instructor. I knew I wanted to get better because I've seen guys like the guys I've mentioned, and I'm like, well, I'm nowhere near that. So how am I going to get better? So I started going out and practicing, basically training out there. And I still do it. Now I'm actually running the program more. But I was practicing. And I'm always interested in how could I be a more effective coach? Because realistically, what we're doing is coaching. It's funny because you've heard Field say he could walk into a gym and get a wrestling coach to teach firefighting better than most fire instructors. (laughs) So it makes you feel shame, of course. So I'm like, I got to get better. I got to try to be better. And this is where Larry comes in because Larry Kane, for people that don't know him, he was in the Olympics for sprint canoe back in the 80s. And he won a gold and a silver medal at least back in the 80s in sprint canoe, Olympic medal. Now he's in his 50s and he's still an absolute monster. He's moved from sprint canoe to stand up paddle and he's racing stand up paddle boards. So I follow him because he knows what it takes to become elite at anything. He had an interesting point when he was teaching the paddle strokes. I want to improve. So I started listening to him. And rather than tell you every little tiny step to the paddle stroke, he broke it down to five fundamentals of an effective paddle stroke and kind of gave you cues on each part of the stroke and what it should feel like when it's effective. He didn't prescribe any really direct, specific way to paddle, recognizing that due to your body and a number of different factors, everybody might have a slightly different technique. But as long as you can meet these five principles, you're going to end up paddling faster. So my thought on the skill sheets and by the book firefighting is, I wonder if it's possible to take that approach to how we train firefighters on skills, because it would eliminate a lot of the confusion of students constantly being told they're doing it wrong, because maybe they're not healing the ladder the way you said. We get so bogged down in such stupid shit, like when you're checking the angle for a proper climbing angle, 
are we supposed to stand on the first rung or stand on the ground? Who gives a fuck? Like, uh, why are we talking about this shit? It wastes time. I was thinking about that and I'm thinking like you could use ladders as an example rather than a strict prescription. Why can't we just say, here are the principles that we're looking at. So the ladders carried and raised in a way that the firefighter has control all times. So it doesn't fall and hit somebody. Would that be reasonable? Yes. Is the ladder a place at an effective climbing angle for the task to be performed? And I'm getting off track, but it's a point of irritation for me. No, for sure. If you, what if you have to put it between two houses and there's only six feet between houses? Oh, but that doesn't happen on the drill ground. Right. <laughs> Always space. Yeah. Well, like, why 75 degrees? Right. Why did they pick that? Exactly. You nailed it. Like, there's always shit in the way. It never goes up at a proper climbing angle. Well, I shouldn't say that, but oftentimes it doesn't. And if it's under a windowsill and there's room, do you want it at a 75? Maybe you want it lower angle. I don't know. So why are we prescribing that it's 75 degrees and failing people during the skills test? Because it's not 75 degrees. And then why can't we just say when we're climbing, you maintain three points of contact. We have one instructor saying you have to hold the rungs. You have another instructor saying you have to slide your hands under the beams. In certain circumstances, I might do one over the other. Or both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then just finish by saying the firefighter adequately secures themselves to the ladder when performing work from the ladder. There's tons of different ways to accomplish that task. I watched that video with Mike Champo, and he shows you a couple different ways to do it without having a fully leg lock. The heel and the hell, which are great alternatives when you have like a size 13 or 14 boot. Now we're down to liability because if they fall off the ladder and they hurt themselves and they say, well, how did you secure yourself? And you didn't do exactly the way we taught you. Now we're off the hook for covering you. Yeah, exactly. So Larry Kane, that really changed my outlook. I'd like to just make my own skill sheets based on principles, what we want to see the result be, and then give people a little more leeway. There's certain tasks that have to be performed a certain way, obviously. If you're trying to get a fire pump in a pump mode, there's a certain procedure that has to be followed in the sequential manner. I touched on liability, and we've also touched on making changes in your own department. So when you're doing that, not only are you dealing with resistance from the guys, you might also be dealing with bureaucracy of the fire department. So what is worth conceding and what is worth fighting for, and do we always have to compromise? Mm -hmm. So I read a book, Never Split the Difference, by Chris Voss. He was a negotiator, I think, for the FBI. So before this, I thought, yeah, everybody, you know, when you're dealing with issues, problems, you have to compromise. That's how things happen. But his opinion was, if you're willing to compromise, that issue is not that important to you. If it's an issue that's important to you and you compromise, you and the other person, you both lose. And I think he's right. If it's that important, you need to keep that steady pressure and you need to find a way. You're not going to be happy with the result if you compromise. And you mentioned how our actions and interactions should be value-driven. Um, to be honest with you, I don't know what way I said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talk about making deals with the devil. Oh yeah, exactly. So right. Making deals with the devil it, to get something accomplished. One thing I love about the fire service is the values that the fire service has. I was attracted to those values because I felt like I'm not a perfect person. I'm a flawed person like everybody else. But this is an organization that is respected for these values, courage, integrity, honesty, discipline. This would be a place that I want to try to always display those values. So when making decisions, we need to stop and ask, is this consistent with our values? And if it isn't, then we don't do it. So there's no such thing as making deals with the devil or making concessions that you know are wrong to get what you want. You just have to go another route. I don't always live up to that. I'm trying to. Very often when we're speaking passionately about the way we believe things should be, 
and the values that we should all live to. It's very easy for people to dismiss this kind of talk by labeling us as, well, you guys think you can always be that way and always be perfect. It's an easy way to dismiss it and then have to ignore everything that's been said. Talk to me about the difference between being lazy and complacent and dismissive. And then the other end of the spectrum would be constant perfection and never having a bad day and the middle ground of reality. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know everything about this stuff. I just think that when you come to work, everybody is allowed to have a bad day. You don't have to show up every day at 100%. And that's why we work as a team. So if I'm having a rotten day and out of sorts, the rest of the crew, they'll pick up my slack for the day. They'll help me out. But that can't carry on for a month or two months. The job comes with a job description and you're not the only person with problems. Everybody has problems. And some people keep it very quiet. Some people you don't even know. But if you're in a leadership role, you don't get to have too many days in a row because you're influencing other people's behavior. You hear about these guys, they're like, oh, just give him a break. He's going through a divorce. Well, I don't know about that. He's supposed to show up and make decisions that could have a large influence on the way a call goes. So if you're that out of sorts, maybe you shouldn't be riding the right front seat. I guess that's easier for me to say because I haven't been going through anything really that bad in the past few years, and I'm not an officer yet. So maybe that's easier said than done. But I mean, the stakes are pretty high. And if you're out of sorts as an officer and it continues on a day-to-day basis, it's going to really hurt the rest of your crew. It's firefighters and officers. It's everybody on the truck, really. But there's a difference between being as skilled as you can and doing your best to do your job and you being in a place where you're not going to be able to do the skills at your best. There's a difference between those two states. Mm -hmm. And an officer is responsible for influencing behavior. So if I'm showing up and I'm not cutting it, he's going to adjust my behavior. That's why they're there. Otherwise, we'd all be equal. He's going to say, I know you're going through something, but pull up your socks, get your shit together. This is a serious job and you need to be present right now. You're not moping in your dorm room all day. We're going to get out there and do something. And maybe that's a good thing for them to do to help them get through it too. I think it would be. We all know people that have struggled with stuff at work. Doesn't it seem like they're better when they get out and they start drilling or if they go to a call and they help someone? damn, then they feel amazing. It's a break from the shit that you're going through. The caveat to that would be if you're struggling with your mental health at the time and running a call and being exposed to something that would be really damaging to you, it's not about hiding at the station. It's about you should be off and do the work you need to do to get into a place where you can come in and then do your job again. Yeah. I mean, you could make it way worse. We don't really screen people when they come into the job. The police get a psych test. I don't know if you can screen for this, but you get someone that's damaged bad. And then we go and take them and make them go to a hanging or something. That's not good for somebody that had some trauma in their years leading up to coming to the fire service. Administrations, departments, firefighters on the job, they have an assumption that recruits come into the job as blank slates and they've never experienced anything. They have no baggage. There's nothing that they have to process and deal with. And everything that they struggle with comes from the job after that. And that's just not necessarily the case. And it's unsafe to bring them in when they have things that they need to process. If you found out through the process that you have a really bad back, you should probably go off and get your back healthy and then come back and apply and then get on the job. That's safe for you. That's safe for the crews. That's safe for the people we're helping. Mental health should be treated the same way. If through the process, you're somehow able to find out that you've got some mental health issues to deal with, you should be able to go away, get the help, get all that sorted out, come back when you're in your best place to apply and then get on the job from there. And then you'll have a better chance of dealing with whatever the job's going to throw at you. Yeah. Do you think that we are doing, as a fire service, let's just say Ontario, are we doing a good job, though, at trying to be resilient to these kind of disorders like PTSD or depression? 
I don't think so. I think we're doing better. I think certain departments and certain areas are doing better than others. We can do way better uh, than we are. It starts with recognizing people before they come on if there's something that they're struggling with because the job's only going to make it worse. So that doesn't eliminate them from ever being able to apply. It just highlights the fact of, well, this is really important. The job's going to damage you more if you get it. So you should probably get this rectified first, then come back in and apply and you're welcome with open arms. And then, like you said, resilience training is key. The job's going to find you, things are going to happen. And the more that we can teach people to be more resilient as a whole, and that's a whole other topic, we can do a lot more to protect our people that way. Should everybody write for captain? No, obviously not. I don't know what your promotion system's like. Ours is purely by seniority. While I was hired, we switched. You had to apply. And our captains, when I started, they weren't better than the captains we have now. I think the captains we have now in general are better, to be honest with you. I don't know why that is. But right now, across the province, is like, oh, well, you got to do it for the best five years of your pension. Well, no, that's not the right reason to do this. There's more at stake. It's not about you. How selfish can you be? If you're a guy that's coming into work for a day off from your day off, you should not be writing for captain. It's so bad because then you get these poor new guys that get hired and they're desperate to do training and learn the job. And all they do is sit all day. I got a guy, a good friend of mine just got hired fairly recently to a fairly large city. He's new. So he's getting bounced around and he has some horrible shifts right now. And he'll ask the cap, hey, can we do something? Like, can we go out and do this? And the cap will say, we're not doing nothing today. He's brand new and he's just sitting there doing nothing. It's brutal. I don't know whether we need to stress to these officers every year, look, read this. This is the job description. This is what you're responsible for. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. Go back to driving or something. Or quit altogether. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we'd like, but yeah. Right. So let's go off of sitting around all day to what are your thoughts on fitness, how it should be approached, and even working out on shift. Yeah. So one of the really cool things about my fire department is they've always pushed physical fitness. To the best of my knowledge, the city gives us money to buy some equipment every year. And then we have money taken off our checks every pay to buy good equipment. So all the stations have like the echo bike, the rower. We have good weights. We have everything that you need to stay fit on the job. And then there's set aside time. So we were on the 24 now. We've been on the 24 for a bunch of years now. So we're allowed in the morning. We have set aside workout time. And then after, they call it flex time. But around 5 o'clock is when you can do an afternoon workout. So my shift generally... We eat late, so I'll do something in the morning. And then uh, in the afternoon, if guys want to, we'll do like a team workout. I think it's crucial. I'm not talking about going in there and setting your phone on the treadmill and watching a show. That's not training. You need to put in 10 to 20 minutes of intense sub-maximal work. You have to do it. First of all, it's good for you as far as building aerobic capacity, which we need. This job is intensely difficult. I think it's getting harder because... For some reason, somebody thinks it's a good idea, and luckily this isn't happening at our department, but somebody thought it's a good idea to go to an hour-long cylinder. You're making the job harder than it already is. We're wearing our SCBA longer than we ever wore it, so you need to be physically really good shape. This job's hard. But then also, if you go to that place where you want to quit, your body's saying, uh, you know, Jeffy, I don't like this. You need to stop. And you push through it. The payoff's huge. It builds resilience. When we go to fires, you don't get to quit. Let's say you get down in the basement and you find somebody down there. It's hot and it's black, you can't see. 
and now you're breathing heavy and you feel like your heart's going to blow out of your chest. Well, you don't get to quit. You have to keep going. And so that type of training helps you work through it because you can say to yourself, okay, I'm hurting, but I've been here before. I'm going to be okay. And it's going to be over eventually. This is a temporary pain. But if you haven't done that, if you haven't trained your mind to be accustomed to that, when the time comes, you're not going to succeed. This is another thing that the cold water exposure is a benefit for. Absolutely, yeah. Because your body's screaming at you to get out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's cold water is the worst. But yeah, so it's huge. I recognize there are some departments. You could be at a station where working out's not going to be a realistic thing because you're busy. I have a friend that works in Mississauga and he's on the same squad as me. So like, how's your shift going? He'll be like, oh, frig, I haven't stopped. We went all night last night. Well, they're probably not going to get to do that. So that's fine. But that's the exception more than the norm for most of Ontario. So there's not much excuse. It's training to be a firefighter. Like every time we do it, I put in a training report. It's training to be a firefighter. That's what it is. When you do the crew workouts, it brings you closer together. It's a huge thing. I see a lot of advantage to it. And then you were talking about, you always get that one guy that's usually sitting there and says, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing that because when the call comes, you're not going to be ready. You're physically going to be not ready. So that's why I don't work out. I just think that's a load of bullshit. I'm sorry, but <laughs> yep. it, it is. What's your excuse on your days often? And the fact of the matter is, even when I just finished one of those, I'll probably be able to outwork that guy, most likely. And another thing to consider too is, who goes into work feeling 100% every single day? You're always got aches, pains. I don't know a guy I work with that goes in physically 100%. You're working through little injuries. Yeah, so maybe a call comes in right after that workout. Usually, if it's only a 10 to 20 minute where you just go hard, usually you've recovered by the time you get to the call and you're fine. One other great point to that also is that going from doing nothing and being completely cold and doing some of the hardest work you've ever done is more dangerous than having worked out and warmed up and being limber and then going and doing that work. Yeah, 100%. I mean, think if you'd crunch the numbers to see who was getting hurt and if you correlated that with how much they work out, that would tell you the story. I'm going to hit you with two more. We're definitely going to get back and do a part two, maybe a part three, man. We've a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I, I talk too much. No, dude, I love it. I love it. It's perfect. Truck engine or rescue? Let me talk about Sarnia first, because in Sarnia, we don't run an engine in a truck other than Station 1. Station 1 has a rescue and an engine. The other stations are single apparatus. 4 has a tanker, but one guy jumps off ladder 4 and drives a tanker if needed. So even the two ladders, we have two aerials. They operate as basically fire engines. So we don't do separated truck and ladder work, and we really don't have a lot of experience venting roofs or anything like that. So for Sarnia, the best position in my mind that I love is driving the rescue. That's the best job in the city because, first of all, that driver, you have to stay sharp because you park the rig, you go to the side compartment, you grab your pack. It runs with the engine, remember? So those guys are getting out ready to go. So you have to be quick. You got to get out, grab your pack, get it on. And that role, it's not freelancing, but that role, a lot of times, they will give you a fair bit of leeway with that role, depending on who you are and how much they trust you. And when I say that, how much, I mean the officers. But that role, they let you kind of fill in the gaps. Normally, if it's a fire in Station One's area, typically what you'll do is you'll go to the door with the tools and start working on the door and try to get the door open while the guys on the engine are stretching. But you could be doing anything. And if a ladder needs to be thrown, you're throwing a ladder. If there's an exposure to starting a light, maybe you'll staff an exposure line. There's all kinds of roles that you might do, but you get a bit more freedom to choose. So in Sarnia, that's the best job in town, I think. And you go to everything. You go to all the rescues, technical rescues. Not that we have 
a ton of technical rescues. If they happen, you're going and you go to all the fires and usually the first release from a fire. So you go have all the fun, make the mess, and they, they're putting it back in service. <laughs> back you go. So awesome. you're not you're not always that popular with the rest of the guys, but that's a great job. But if I belong to one of those big cities, I think I'd rather be on the truck and maybe try my hand at the rescue. But talking to like brass, the rescue guys are a different breed. I don't know if I have the discipline. He was explaining them what they do and it's tough work. Doesn't sound like there's a lot of downtime for those guys. I thought I was all in. And then he's describing how they operate. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Like I can be a little lazy once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) But the truck of the rescue is probably where I go for one of those departments. So let's undone before we button it up and plan on part two. What are the traits of emergency responders that you admire and aspire to emulate? The traits of the guys that I really respect, and I'm not good at this, but the top guys that you and I know, they are so generous with their time. And I know their lives are busy, but if you were to text those guys, they'll say, hang on, I'll give you a call. And they'll drop what they're doing and give you a call. So being generous with your time, because that's obviously one of the most valuable resources is someone's time. That's a huge thing. And I'm trying to get better at that. Like if somebody texts me for something, I try to not to ignore them. I try to text them back real quick and say, listen, I've got your email or your text. and I'm going to get back to you. Yeah, for sure. I'll help you if I can. That's something that I really admire. They don't hoard their work. They're willing to share it with anybody when you ask. They're more than willing to share it. Aaron just asked that give credit where credit's due. Don't try to make it your own. And I try to do that if I have just something as simple as a training safety plan. I put it out so that everybody can use it so they don't have to make their own. And then obviously the top guys that you see everywhere you go across North America are the best guys, the most humble people you'll ever meet. And you're drawn to them because of that. They're just extraordinary people. So that's something that I'd like to emulate. The other thing too, is some of these guys are a little crazy, which I think is cool. Like sometimes you look at some of the best firefighters and you go, there's something not quite right with you. (laughs) I actually like that. I'm like, that makes him a good firefighter in a way. I can't quite put my finger on it. There's no reason to try to emulate it because you you can't, you're not going to, that's something unique to them, right? Sure. And maybe speak to uh, remaining in control when in disagreement with others. Yeah. And that's something that I'm not good at. I've lost my temper a couple of times and I really regret it. Yeah, you're right. Those guys are good at talking to people and not losing their temper. And they stay calm the entire time. Because from what I've been reading and listening to, as soon as you're yelling and freaking out, losing your temper, you're out of control. You're actually acting like a child because you feel like you don't have control of the situation. And you're going to out yell somebody or threaten them to get your way. How do you solve problems by doing that? And those guys are all like that. I mean, they'll talk to you in a reasonable fashion. And they do have the ability, I think, to convince people that their idea is right which is something that's very special. I mean, that's almost impossible to do. Right. Especially in the fire service. Yeah. Well, you've been extremely generous with your time today. It means a lot to me and I hope I can have you back again. Yeah. Thank you for the work you're doing too. I reached out to you when you first came out with your podcast because I think you're doing a really good job. You're obviously putting in the work to do it well. It's, It's enjoyable and I'm learning a lot from your podcast. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you.